Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by Studio. Studio is applying Swedish design to audio technology in order to produce superior headphones for a superior listening experience. They have many choices available on their website, but I myself have the Vasa, and I'm very happy with them. I'm apparently pretty rough on my earbuds, which have to accompany me into and out of the Boston metro area on packed commuter rail trains five days a week, and usually I cycle through a cheap pair of buds every couple months or so but I've been using my studio earbuds for a while now, and they still look like new, and more importantly, they still are delivering an almost like being their audio experience. So I highly recommend them. And just to make a good thing even better, the good people of studio have given me an affiliate link, which means that if you, my listeners, go to www.studiosweden.com forward slash American, you can save 15% off the retail price of any set of headphones that you choose. The best part is they'll even send me a few dollars for referring you. So help support American Biography while doing yourself a favor and visit www.studiosweden.com forward slash American today. This episode is also brought to you by several new patrons who I want to thank at the outset before we get started. Steve, Ronald, and David went to www.patreon.com forward slash ambio and signed up to become recurring supporters of the podcast. So they're enjoying access to our recently released bonus episode right now and won't ever miss any new bonus episodes when they're released. I also want to thank Matt. Now he doesn't like signing up to things, so he chose a different path and he made a handsome one-time donation to the podcast through PayPal. So he's also enjoying the John Quincy Adams bonus episode. But it's not going to stop there. I will shortly be announcing additional ways in which I plan to reward American Biography supporters in the near future. But while I wanted to float that out there, I'm going to save the details for a different time. And for now, let's get back to the life of Marshall. Hello and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is The Life of John Marshall, Episode 27, Marshall at Work. When Marshall joined the Supreme Court, he was joining what many saw as the least important 
and the least respected branch of the federal government. We've already discussed how Marshall transformed the court and talked a bit about his early judicial brethren, with whom he shared the bench. Cushing, Chase, Moore, Patterson, and Washington provided Marshall sure footing and stability for four full years as his redirection of the federal judiciary took root and became the new norms around which future courts would coalesce. But what's not been commented on is how remarkably fortunate it was that this group managed to hang together for that long. As you know, the judges had to travel quite a bit, and riding the circuit was tough. But we really shouldn't underestimate how difficult the challenges of simply surviving 19th century roads and conveyances could be. Here, Gene Smith catalogs some of the justices' woes. Justice Cushing, on the First Circuit in New England, had been badly injured on several occasions when his coach overturned. Chase was almost drowned when his ferry was swept away on the rain-swollen Susquehanna. And Alfred Moore confronted danger constantly in the backwoods of South Carolina and Georgia. Justice Patterson, on circuit in New Jersey, suffered serious injury. The coach in which I was returning home overset down a precipice of ten feet, he wrote to Marshall. The 58-year-old Patterson said he was so much injured, particularly on my right side and left shoulder, that I am not yet able to dress, undress, etc., without assistance. And since apparently horse-drawn carriages were just the natural predator of the Supreme Court justice, and were trying to get them at all times. In 1812, Marshall was traveling to session in Washington when his own coach overturned, while descending down a muddy slope, resulting in a broken collarbone. So it shouldn't surprise us that eventually the justices surrounding Marshall would begin to retire, and it was Alfred Moore who would be the first departure. He had been ill for some time, and his situation had reached a point where he could no longer undergo the rigors of the circuit or the annual trip to Washington to attend the Supreme Court. So in 1804, he penned his resignation, providing President Jefferson his first chance to reshape the court in his image. To maximize the impact of his selection, Jefferson picked a young Republican he had deemed reliably partisan enough, named William Johnson. Johnson won confirmation easily, with one Federalist senator remarking that he is a zealous Democrat, but is said to be honest and capable. If Jefferson was pleased with his pick initially, the shine wouldn't last, because in his first year as an associate justice, Johnson would end up siding with Marshall on all 26 cases that would come before the court. In 1806, Justice William Patterson died, and for his second appointment, Jefferson turned to an old Princeton classmate of Madison's, Henry Brockholst Livingston. If Jefferson expected personal connections with the administration to translate to loyalty, he was again disappointed, as Livingston was instantly won over by Marshall. It had just so happened that despite their political differences, Livingston and Marshall had a similar worldview, as well as a similar sense of humor, and got along rather famously. Out of the 400 cases they decided while on the court together, Livingston would only break with Marshall eight times. In 1807, 
the judicial needs of a growing nation, resulted in a new circuit court being created to service the new states of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Ohio. This afforded Jefferson one last opportunity to install someone to counterbalance Marshall and leave some sort of imprint upon the judiciary. And he essentially threw away his shot. On the advice of several congressmen, he appointed what he took to be a populist Republican named Thomas Todd. Unfortunately, Todd turned out to be one of the most insignificant and least influential justices to ever sit on the Supreme Bench. His tenure is best remembered, when it's remembered at all, for giving Marshall excellent political advice about the state of affairs in the West, as needed, and for being a consummate team player who was usually ready to support the Chief Justice. Jefferson's Attorney General bemoaned this obvious pattern of co-option, saying, You can scarcely elevate a man to a seat in a court of justice before he catches the leprosy of the bench. Others, like Federalist Oliver Walcott, joked, Everyone who knew that great man, meaning Marshall, knew that he possessed, to an extraordinary degree, the faculty of putting his own ideas in the minds of others, unconsciously to them. Though Jefferson would never change his tune on Marshall or the judiciary, and would often, unsuccessfully, seek to influence his successors in their appointment-making, his own time to shape the Supreme Court was effectively over. 1808 was an election year, and Thomas Jefferson was retiring. Now, we're not quite done with Mr. Jefferson yet. He was a prolific letter writer, and he'll pop up with comments and observations about the United States quite a bit, even in retirement. And there's actually a lot left to unpack when evaluating his and John Marshall's relationship. There's enough to this rivalry that I wanted to talk about that I've decided to take it out of this episode and produce a dedicated episode just to that topic. So we're going to set that aside for the moment, but know that we'll be coming back to it soon. Now, let's move forward. Marshall conspicuously took no part in the election of 1808, writing that he'd absolutely withdrawn from the busy circles in which politics are discussed and scarcely ever read a newspaper. Now, while we can doubt the veracity of that, what we know to be true is the winner of that year's presidential contest was the father of the Constitution, and heretofore Jefferson political generalissimo and secretary of state, James Madison. Whatever the expectations for the Madison presidency coming in, many were likely surprised. Once in power in his own right, Madison proved to be much more willing to find common ground with the judiciary in the name of national unity than his predecessor ever had. It's possible that the War of 1812, which took up a decent chunk of the Madison presidency, made such a stance a necessity. However, the resulting emphasis on national unity under the Constitution played directly into Marshall's hands and reinforced the nationalist message that he'd been projecting for over a decade. Madison simply did not share the Jeffersonian view that the courts were subordinate to the popular will. And suddenly, conflicts over the separation of powers were fewer and farther between. Despite policy differences, Smith says, Marshall and Madison saw eye to eye 
on the organization and role of the federal government. When William Cushing died in 1810, President James Madison got to choose his first justice. Jefferson warned his protege that it will be difficult to find a character of firmness enough to preserve his independence on the same bench as Marshall, and he lobbied for the appointment of a hardline Republican to put on the court. Madison, however, had different ideas and began looking at moderate alternatives, going so far as to offer the position to John Quincy Adams, a turnabout Federalist. When Adams declined the position, Madison next turned to a 32-year-old Republican lawyer from Massachusetts, Joseph Story, who remains the youngest person ever to take a seat on the Supreme Court. Story would become something of a son to Marshall, and the two enjoyed a fruitful professional partnership for nearly a quarter century. The two judges' styles complemented each other handsomely, with Marshall's penchant for broad constitutional theory ably supplemented by Story's eye for detail. One illustrative, if likely apocryphal example, of how this relationship supposedly worked is the anecdote in which Marshall was said to remark, Now, Story, that is the law. You find the precedence for it. Next, in 1811, Samuel Chase, George Washington's last active appointment to the high court, finally passed away. To replace him, President Madison turned to another moderate Republican, Gabriel Duval of Maryland. This was a watershed event, because at this point, Jefferson's and Madison's appointments to the court constituted a majority of the justices. It should have now been a thoroughly Republican court. But somehow this wasn't the case. In the end, it was still John Marshall's court. In fact, it was now the classic Marshall court. Edward Samuel Corwin gives us a nice snapshot of this new starting lineup. Five were Southerners, the exceptions being Livingston from New York and Story from Massachusetts. Washington, Duval, and Todd belonged to the plantation class by birth, while Marshall and Johnson were of humbler origins and tended to be closer to the commercial community than to the landed gentry. Livingston was the only native-born aristocrat among the justices, and Story personified the virtues and foibles of Puritan New England. These were the justices from whom the greatest constitutional decisions concerning federal supremacy, commercial law, and real property would be handed down, setting the stage for the United States' great economic expansion of the 1830s and 40s, and this band would be together for a while. Livingston would serve until 1823, Todd until 1826, Washington until 1829, Johnson until 1834, Marshall and Duval both until 1835, while Story would go on until 1845. To say that Marshall dominated his new colleagues would be misleading, and I think it's a poor way to frame his leadership of the court. He was not overbearing like, say, Lyndon Johnson was. No, Marshall's leadership wasn't tyrannical. It was congenial. As 20th century Justice Felix Frankfurter later quipped, Marshall himself, hard-headed as he was, and free from obvious self-deception, would doubtless be greatly amused by the claim that he was the whole of his court. Marshall wasn't dealing with childlike neophytes, 
that would be overawed and overwhelmed just to be put on the court or to be in his presence. The judges were impressive men with their own list of individual accomplishments. As Smith notes, five had legislative experience, and two, Johnson and Story, had been the speaker of their respective state legislatures. Four had served as justice of their state supreme courts, and two, Duval and Todd, had actually been chief justices. Marshall couldn't bully these people. He needed to use his powers of dissemblance and humor to win them over by charm, and when occasion called for it, to smooth ruffled egos. And with his quiet, unassuming perseverance, he would be successful in keeping the court largely unified, regardless of which party was in power, or of individual justices' previous political loyalties. Behind the scenes, Marshall maintained many of the practices that had made the previous incarnation of the court such a tight-knit group. When court was in session, the judges usually boarded together. When in session, every day, except Sundays, they convened at 11 a.m. to hear arguments, and wrapped up around 4 in the afternoon. Dinner was served at their hotel at 5 o'clock, and was followed by their evening conference, and here they reviewed the events of the day, and began to formulate the positions the court would take. This type of daily recap was needed, at least partly because at the time, written briefs were not always submitted to the court, and the justices often had to rely on their memories of the oral arguments that they had just heard. Smith describes these meetings as the origins of the modern meetings of the Supreme Court, referred to as the Conference, but calls Marshall's much more casual, and says they were undoubtedly lubricated with well-chosen Madeira. The discussions were freewheeling, and here, the justices were encouraged to arrive at a common understanding on the points, and could be described as a pleasant and animated interchange of legal acumen. They were invaluable not only in establishing a collective identity of the court, but also in providing firm, clear guidance as to the law in a given case. These clearly weren't dry or stuffy formal affairs. In later days, Joseph Story joked that Marshall was raised on federalism and Madeira. And Story, in fact, seems to be the source of another anecdote about Marshall's court in which it was said that there was a rule that there'd only be wine drinking allowed if it were raining. However, Marshall would often look out the window on clear, sunny days and declare wine drinking permissible. Because the court's jurisdiction extends over so large a territory that the doctrine of chances make it certain that it must be raining somewhere. But I don't want you to be fooled into thinking that things were exactly as they had been before. With personnel changes, the court was evolving. Johnson, in particular, was more independent-minded than many of his colleagues, and had a particular disliking for Marshall's habit of speaking on behalf of the court, and he helped to reestablish the practice of judges writing separate opinions, both in concurrence with the majority and even in dissent. Interestingly, though one of Marshall's earliest initiatives had been the discouraging of the writing of individual seriatim opinions by justices, so that the court would speak with a single voice, well, that reform may have been more necessary in 1801, 
because over a decade later, the practical effects of public disagreement among the judges seemed to produce the opposite effect than one might have expected. It actually now seemed that the existence of dissents tended to reinforce the court's image as being a neutral arbiter of the nation's laws, and this helped in turn burnish public respect for the court's rulings. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The fabled unanimity of the court broke down in 1814, which saw the Supreme Court for the first time dealing with many issues arising out of the War of 1812, such as questions of prize law, the rule of belligerency, and trading with the enemy. In regards to these questions, Marshall and Livingston were inclined to interpret the powers of the government narrowly, while Story and Washington tended to take a more nationalist stance. Johnson, Duval, and Todd floated between the two camps, but usually gravitated towards Marshall. Now that I've mentioned the War of 1812 a few times, we should probably talk about it. Like most Federalists, Marshall thought the War of 1812 was an unwise war of choice that could have been avoided as ruinous foreign wars had been avoided before with both Britain and France. There were multiple motivations behind the drive to war in 1812, however. 
British impressment of American sailors continued to be a controversial practice of the Royal Navy on the high seas. American westward expansion into the Ohio River Valley had risen significantly since 1795 and was increasingly bringing settlers into conflict with Native American nations whom the British materially supported. Some Westerners might even have had an eye on the annexation of British Canada as a possible benefit of a conflict. And these threads were brought together by the elections of 1810, which brought the 12th Congress to Washington, D.C. This Congress was unique in its makeup due to an unusually high percentage of incoming freshmen. According to David and According to David and Jean Heidler, in their excellent book, Henry Clay, The Essential American, about half of the previous Congress's incumbents had not been returned by angry constituents, and the new Congress was largely composed of men under 40, ambitious, reckless, and excited to be part of what they saw as an insurgency. They were a fire-breathing lot that history often refers to as the Warhawks. President Madison was ill-equipped to combat the aggression of these representatives, who seemed far more determined to stand up for what they perceived as American honor than they felt their senior counterparts were. Perhaps a president whose military chops and reputation for personal courage were unquestioned, like Washington, or one who was just plain stubborn, like Adams, could have combated Congress's belligerency. But the bookish and frail president, nicknamed Little Jemmy, could not, and he relented, signing a declaration of war in June 1812. The deed being done, Madison's Secretary of State, James Monroe, took the extraordinary step of sending Chief Justice Marshall the relevant documents supporting the decision. This would have been nigh unthinkable during the Jefferson administration, but in 1812, the decision to do so reflected the warming relations between the executive and judicial branches, a rekindling of Monroe and Marshall's old friendship, and possibly a calculated effort to gain the influential Chief Justice's support in order to dampen Federalist opposition to what was already unfairly being called Mr. Madison's War. While Marshall would not provide the administration his political support for the war, he would not publicly oppose it, and now that a state of war did exist, he did not wish the United States to lose. So when, in 1813, a British squadron made landfall 40 miles south of Richmond, city leaders scrambled to organize a defense for the city, and John Marshall served as the head of the fortification subcommittee tasked with making the city safe. His appraisal of the situation, however, was grim. He wrote, there is in this city, or its immediate vicinity, no particular height or eminence which overlooks the commands of the whole town. There is no spot on which a battery could be erected that would annoy an enemy in whatever direction he might approach, nor is it necessary for an invading army to enter the city by any particular route. Any one or more of five or six roads might be used. The fortification of any particular spot, therefore, would afford no protection to the city, nor would the defense of any particular road impede the advance of an enemy into the center of town. A very small circuit would enable him to avoid our works, 
and to enter the town where the way would be open to him. No works would afford any essential advantage unless the whole town should be enclosed and regularly fortified. Such works would require sums unattainable by us, and, if erected, would require a garrison for their defense more than sufficient to beat the enemy in the open field. So, with that in mind, he suggested that the Virginia 19th Regiment be sent out into the field to prepare to block the way of any advance towards Richmond. That advance luckily never came, and that British advance force instead turned around and rejoined the main battle fleet in the Chesapeake. The particular vicissitudes of the War of 1812 would be best saved for the study of another life, of someone more intimately involved in it. Suffice it for now to say that despite the patriotic description of the conflict as a second war of independence, it could perhaps be better described as an inglorious draw, wherein few of the causes of the war were ever addressed, and none of the hoped-for gains were achieved. There are, however, some events of consequence that relate to John Marshall that do need to be discussed. The first is the British sacking of Washington, D.C. on August 24, 1814. On that date, the British occupied the American capital and put to the torch all of the public buildings in Washington, including the President's house and the U.S. Capitol building. Now, along with the rest of the federal government, the Supreme Court was homeless, and it had only recently found a respectable home in 1810 when the interior of the Capitol had been redesigned and the Senate was moved from the first floor to the second floor. It was then that the court and its library had moved into the vacated spaces below, and Congress had almost even made funds available to furnish it. I mean, ultimately they didn't, and the Senate struck those funds out of an appropriations bill, so Marshall ended up making the payments for furnishments available out of a contingency fund for the judiciary. But still, Congress had come close. One contemporary attorney paints for us this picture of the court's first proper home. Under the Senate chamber is the Hall of Justice, the ceiling of which is not unfancifully formed by the arches that support the former. The judges in their robes of solemn black are raised on the seats of grave mahogany, and below them is the bar, and behind that an arcade, still higher, so contrived as to afford auditors double rows of terrace seats thrown in segments around the traverse arch under which the judges sit. But now, due to the cruel fortunes of war, all this was gone. The furniture was destroyed. Whatever books and records had survived the flames had been ransacked and dispersed. When Congress met in special session that fall, it did so in a local hotel and arranged for the construction of a temporary meeting place for itself while the burnt husk of the Capitol was repaired. But the Supreme Court an afterthought at the best of times was altogether neglected now, and for the 1815 and 1816 terms, it would take up temporary residence on Pennsylvania Avenue in the home of Elias Caldwell, the court clerk. One local court watcher, George Ticknor, provides us a contemporary description of the Chief Justice and his colleagues from this time. I passed the whole of this morning in the Supreme Court. The room in which the judges are compelled temporarily to sit is, like everything else that is official, 
uncomfortable, and unfit for the purpose for which it is used. They sat, I thought inconveniently, at the upper end, but as they were all dressed in flowing black robes and were fully powdered, they looked dignified. The Chief Justice of the United States is the first lawyer, if not, indeed, the first man in the country. You must then imagine before you a man who is tall to awkwardness, with a large head of hair, which looked as if it had been lately tied or combed, and with dirty boots. You must imagine him, too, with a strangeness in his manners, which arises neither from awkwardness nor from formality, but seems to be a curious compound of both. His style and tone and conversation are uncommonly mild, gentle, and conciliatory, and before I had been with him half an hour, I had forgotten the carelessness of his dress and person, and observed only the quick intelligence of his eyes, and the open interest he discovered in the subjects on which he spoke, by the perpetual variation of his countenance. In 1817, things actually managed to get a little worse, and the court left Caldwell's house and temporarily moved into a gloomy, windowless basement office of the Capitol building, which Daniel Webster called little better than a dungeon. But this would be the court's home for yet another two years. The other event which we need to talk about briefly is the death of Marshall's beloved Federalist Party. The economic diplomacy both Jefferson and Madison had pursued through the Embargo Act of 1807 and the Non-Intercourse Act of 1809 had actually led to a brief Federalist resurgence, especially in New England, where those state economies were dominated by the shipping and trade harmed by those Republican laws. Following another embargo put in place by Madison in 1813, and with the burning of the Capitol the next year, in October of 1814 a call went out for a convention of New England states to meet for the purpose of organizing their defenses from the British and discussing their grievances with the federal government. Twenty-six delegates convened in Hartford, Connecticut on December 15, 1814, and conducted three weeks of secret talks. The report that came out of the Hartford Convention both echoed Jefferson and Madison's own Kentucky and Virginia resolutions and presaged the South Carolina Exposition in its endorsement of a constitutional theory that professed individual states possessed the power to set aside national laws that they deemed unconstitutional and which they felt interfered with state sovereignty. The convention also helpfully laid out suggestions for specific constitutional amendments that these New England Federalists thought might help, in general, but which, when looked at critically, seem oddly specific and reactionary to the circumstances of the five years which preceded them. These suggestions included prohibiting any trade embargo lasting over 60 days, requiring a two-thirds congressional majority for a declaration of offensive war, admission of a new state, or interdiction of foreign commerce, removing the three-fifths representation advantage of the South, limiting future presidents to one term, and requiring each president to be from a different state than his predecessor. Unfortunately for the Federalists, events were outpacing them while they sat in conclave at Hartford. In Belgium, American and British negotiators had actually concluded the Treaty of Ghent, ending the unpopular war on the basis of status quo antebellum. To make matters worse for the Federalists, before news of the treaty had crossed the Atlantic, 
American forces scored a major victory at New Orleans, igniting waves of patriotic fervor against which the Federalists now appeared craven, seditious, and perhaps traitorous. As a result, the party was now effectively dead nationally, and even in New England it saw its influence shrink. Though the Treaty of Ghent failed to secure American maritime rights, which was one of the primary motivations behind the war, it was generally held to be a diplomatic success. This is mostly due to the fact that it served American expansionist impulses as the British made concessions in and around the Great Lakes. Despite the burning of the capital, Americans felt that they had given as good as they'd gotten, and as peace was punctuated by the victory of New Orleans, they could convince themselves that American honor had been served. Passing out of the uncertainty of war, national confidence was waxing. And with the falling away of an institutionalized opposition party, prospects for a productive age of cooperation seemed to roll out before the nation. This was the era of good feelings. After the War of 1812, American politics, while never for the faint of heart, at least for a time, trended towards unifying. This wasn't as simple as the Federalists had effectively committed party suicide, or that Jeffersonianism now reigned. No. Madison helped to find a third way, supporting many of the policies being pursued by Henry Clay in Congress, where a national economic policy, Clay dubbed the American system, was emerging. The American system called for three distinct but mutually reinforcing prongs that, in his view, would create a self-reliant, a mutually beneficial economy that would perpetually tie the sections of the country together. The first prong was a national bank that would reinforce a single currency and strengthen national credit and facilitate trade. The second was federal funding for the construction of roads and canals to help move goods and resources more quickly and cost-effectively across the nation. And the last prong was the establishment of protective tariffs on imports to shield nascent national manufacturing centers. All of these policies were essentially Federalist in nature, or at least required accommodation of Federalist constitutional theory. Madison had allowed the charter for Hamilton's original bank to expire in 1811, but nonetheless in 1816 he signed the bill chartering the second bank of the United States. Construction on the Cumberland Road which was meant to connect the Potomac and Ohio rivers and ran from what is today Cumberland, Maryland to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was begun in 1811, and in 1815, Madison called for additional federal spending to pay for the construction of national infrastructure, though he did ultimately object to the specific bill Congress eventually presented to him and vetoed it. Madison also called upon Congress to promote manufacturing, as Hamilton had done, and in 1816, signed into law expressly protectionist tariffs. But nobody personified the new era quite like James Monroe, who assumed the presidency in 1817. He was more than happy to continue down this path of tying the nation together and of letting old lines of division and enmity fade away. The institutional rapprochement between the executive and judicial branches begun under the previous administration, continued in these years, even as the personal reconciliation between Monroe and Marshall came to full fruition. 
Marshall by now was summering at a kind of resort near the Falkworth White Sulphur Springs, and at the Chief Justice's invitation, President Monroe and his wife began doing likewise, occupying the cottage next to John, and sometimes, though infrequently, Polly Marshall. After Washington, D.C. was patched up, less toxic politics surely led to a sweeter social scene, which only truly kicked off when the justices arrived in town for their session. A correspondent for the New York Commercial Advertiser wrote, The city begins to be gay, but the season of greatest festivity is after the Supreme Court commences its session. The arrival of the judges, counselors, parties, etc., connected with the high court creates a stir in the metropolis. There are now tea and dining parties daily. The president gives two superb dinners a week, and every other Wednesday evening, Mrs. Monroe holds a drawing room. A word of caution, I think, is in order before we wrap up today. It's tempting to view the era of good feelings as a golden age. One might feel there's ample evidence to support that contention, assuming everybody could agree on a single criteria for what constitutes a golden age. I personally don't believe in golden ages. There are distinct periods, for sure, that may or may not align with individual subjective ideals about the way things ought to be, that can cause us to minimize and overlook conflicts that always raged throughout any such given period. Sectional conflict quieted following the War of 1812, but its continued existence is evidenced in 1819 when Missouri was ready to enter the Union and brought the question of the expansion of slavery to the fore. The Missouri Compromise, which diffused the crisis by admitting Missouri as a slave state and breaking the main territory off of Massachusetts and allowing it to enter the Union as a free state, was never going to do as a permanent solution, as Thomas Jefferson wrote at the time to a friend. But this momentous question, like a fire bell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I considered it at once, the knell of the Union. It is hushed indeed for the moment, but this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. Partisan vitriol dampened down as well following the War of 1812, but it never died. Again, as Jefferson observes in this excerpt of an 1824 letter, an opinion prevails that there is no longer any distinction, that the Republican and Federalists are completely amalgamated but it is not so. The amalgamation is of name only, not of principle. All indeed call themselves by the name Republicans, because that of the Federalists was extinguished in the Battle of New Orleans. But the truth is that finding that monarchy is a desperate wish in this country, they rally to the point which they think next best, a consolidated government. Their aim is now therefore to break down the rights reserved by the Constitution to the states as a bulwark against that consolidation, the fear of which produced the hold of the opposite to the Constitution at its birth. Hence, new Republicans in Congress, preaching the doctrines of the old Federalists and the new nicknames of ultras and radicals. But I trust they will fail under the new as the old name, and that the friends of the real Constitution and Union will prevail against consolidation, as they have done against monarchism. I scarcely know myself which is most to be deprecated, a consolidation or dissolution of the states. 
The horrors of both are beyond the reach of human foresight. So when party spirits came roaring back in the age of Jackson, they didn't simply manifest out of nowhere. Right here, Jefferson identifies the basic fault lines that'll end up separating Democrats and Whigs. It's clear these disagreements didn't just appear in the 1830s. They never disappeared during the era of good feelings, and nothing stands better as a testament to this than the continuing work of the Supreme Court under John Marshall, which was about to embark on one of the most momentous periods of its, or any other court's, existence. All right, we're going to stop there today. Remember, you can get access to the recently released bonus episode about John Quincy Adams' fight against slavery and the gag rule by signing up as a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash A-M-B-I-O or by making a one-time donation of $5 or more through PayPal, a button for which can be found on our website, AmericanBiography.webs.com. You can also follow American Biography on Facebook or on Twitter at American underscore bio. And if you need to get a hold of me for any reason, the email is AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, everyone, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.